You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. Sometimes in life, what we'll notice is that things seemingly get worse while they are simultaneously actually getting better. We see this in turbulent Airplane flights, as they bounce and dip and dive through the air, making all of the passengers anxious, some of the passengers ill, yet all the while the plane is getting nearer and nearer the destination. Or maybe some of you remember being an elementary school student, pining for the days of high school to come. But in order to get there, you had to pass through the gawky years of middle school before arriving in your presumed glory days. When you're sick with a virus, your fever often rises and becomes more and more unbearable before you're finally well. As children grow, they experience pain in their very bones and their sinews, but it's leading to a stronger and larger and healthier body. Maybe most notable Among these examples is childbirth. Laboring in birth is exhausting and painful and stressful and emotional. But it is certainly progressive. And in the end is a beautiful arrival of a baby boy or a baby girl. And if we were to look at the Exodus narrative from 30,000 feet, what we would see is that it is a birth narrative, a travel narrative. It's a coming-of-age story about the people of Israel. But where we are in chapters 5 and 6, it marks a significant moment of turbulence in their journey. A birth pain, a growing pain, a rising fever. In the chapters preceding these ones that we are looking at today, we're introduced to Yahweh, the God of Israel, and all of His promises that He has for His people. He's the eternal, relational, covenant-making God. And he's promised Israel that through Moses, he will deliver them from slavery. The people of Israel believed this good news in chapter 4, when Moses and Aaron brought it to them, and they worshipped Yahweh. But when Moses and Aaron followed, telling the people of Israel what God was going to do, they went to Pharaoh to tell him to release the people of Israel, and things did not go well for them. For instead of releasing Israel from slavery, Pharaoh responded by making the slavery for the Israelites even more harsh, more painful, more depressing. You see, the Israels were a human brick factory for the infrastructure of Egypt. Their job was to, as slaves, turn straw that was given to them into bricks. That way the kingdom of Egypt could be built up. But following Moses and Aaron's visit to his palace, Pharaoh becomes very angry. This people Israel, he thought, is idle and lazy. So let's give them more work to do, he said telling the foremen of Israel that no more should they gather straw and bring it to the people of Israel, but now they have to gather their straw and make bricks too with the same quota in the same amount of time. 
and when they couldn't accomplish this impossible task, the Israelite middle managers or foremen were beaten by the taskmasters. So these foremen of Israel came to Moses and Aaron depressed and crushed. They were promised that God was going to free them from their yoke of slavery, yet the marks they bore on their backs from being whipped and beaten showed that things were getting worse and not better. And many of us probably feel like the Israelites at times, feeling like things are getting worse in the world around us, even though we've heard that God is doing a great work. Maybe we look at our journey and sanctification and our ongoing struggles with sin and think things are not getting better. Maybe we watch the news and are depressed by current events. Maybe our relationships around us are crumbling. But today, through the word of God, my hope for us is that we will gain a biblically based, hopeful optimism and a helpful grid for how to accurately assess our place in the world as God's people, even when conditions might seem to us that they are worse than ever. Where we pick up this morning in the text, Moses and Aaron have been confronted by the people, the people who are angry and discouraged, and so Moses responds to this plea from the people, to the anger of the people, by going to the Lord with his problems. Beginning in chapter 5, verse 22, the word of the Lord says that Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done this evil to my people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to his people, and you have not delivered your people at all. So last week, God promised Moses that he was going to harden Pharaoh's heart. He told Moses, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will not easily let the people go. And so Moses knew, or at least he should have known, that upon his first visit to Pharaoh's palace, that things probably weren't going to go well. But but nevertheless, for Moses, the woes of slavery along with being in charge of a despondent nation relying upon him, leads Moses to feel angry. He feels like a failure. He was given this task of going to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh responded in anger. And so he responds to this failure. He responds to his anger. He responds to his depression by going to the Lord. He went to the Lord questioning everything doubting his role in God's plan, doubting that God is actually going to be faithful, doubting that God is in the midst of keeping his promises. He's just complaining to God that everything that is happening is awful. And I think we have something to learn from Moses here. See, when life is difficult and full of suffering, when we feel that we are failures to the uttermost, when we are angry and sad and depressed, or when we're full of doubt, or when we think God's promises are never going to come to pass, we should, like Moses, go to the Lord. If there's one thing that we've learned in the last 
four or five chapters of Exodus, it is that God is a God who hears and responds to his people's cries. Moses didn't listen to the angry Israelites and decide to make up a plan so that they might be pleased by him on the spot. Nor did he decide that, well, since my first visit to Pharaoh didn't work, I'll pull myself up by my bootstraps and I'll go back to Pharaoh. No, he went to the Lord. He went to the Lord, and in chapter 6, Yahweh the Lord responds to Moses, and this is where we start seeing things get very interesting in our text. Beginning in verse 1, chapter 6 says, But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of the land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Take note of how God is responding here. He's not angry with Moses for being upset or for doubting or lacking hope. Rather, he responds by reminding Moses of who he is and what he is going to do. God surely knows how hard things are for the people of Israel. He knows how hopeless Moses himself probably feels. But his response is to remind Moses to take hold of the promises that he has already made. And he couches that in offering Moses that he is giving him a fuller understanding of who he is and what he's doing. God is telling Moses not to worry about Pharaoh. For Pharaoh's wickedness and oppression will not last. God is going to have victory over Pharaoh. And Pharaoh is going to experience the full weight of God's justice and God's wrath. And Israel will surely be made free. But what we read in verse 3 is particularly interesting. He tells Moses that the fathers of Israel before knew him, but they knew him by the name El Shaddai, which means God Almighty or the all-sufficient God. He revealed himself to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob as the God who was sufficient to sustain, bless, and protect his people. He was enough. But now he has made himself known to Moses and to Israel in Egypt in a more personal and intimate and relational name, Yahweh. This is a name that over the last couple of weeks we've been talking about, but essentially the name Yahweh means the God who is, the God who was, the God who always will be. Yahweh is the God who makes covenant promises and keeps them. He is the God who is all-sufficient, sure, but he is also the God who is intimately related to his people. And so in the midst of the hardship for Israel, and in the process of God rescuing them from the harsh slavery they are experiencing, God is also revealing himself in a new and glorious and graceful way to Moses and all the people of Israel. Through this suffering... Through the exodus, the people of Israel will get to know a depth of God that had never been experienced before. It isn't that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob before them didn't truly know God, but they didn't know him like this. 
they didn't know him this fully. God continues to speak in verses 4 and 5 saying, I also established my covenant with them, being Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. My covenant was to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard in the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. See, God is connecting his name once again, as we've already seen in Exodus, to the covenant promises he's made in his past. God is showing us through this conversation with Moses that who he is or what he is called is always intimately linked to what he does. He is Yahweh, the God who makes and keeps promises. He is Yahweh, the God who kept promises, sustained and multiplied Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob before. And so he will surely sustain Israel just the same as he always has. He tells Moses to look back on all that he has done in the past. But moving forward into verses 6 through 8, he'll begin to tell Moses that what he is doing in the present is leading to what he has promised in the future. He says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, this is in verse 6, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God. This language that God is using is really powerful. God is promising to redeem Israel. And redemption is a concept that carries a lot of weight and meaning in the Bible. Most simply, to redeem something was to pay pay the full price that was owed in order for a piece of property to be kept safely within the possession of an original owner or family. Redemption was to pay the necessary price for something in order for it to be restored to the way it ought to be. This often occurred through a close relative paying for property that one of their relatives was foreclosing on so that their family member could keep it and not allow it into the hands of a stranger. And these kinsmen redeemers who would redeem the property of their family members were heroic and sacrificial characters in the Hebrew world. They were people who cared deeply for their own people. And in this case, God is promising to be Israel's redeemer. He's already said that Israel is his firstborn son. They're his people. They belong to him, and they are to be his kingdom. He's promised them that he would be their God, and they have promised him that they would be his people. But at the moment, they are in Pharaoh's possession, serving as slaves in Egypt rather than serving as worshipers in God's promised land. And so God has chosen himself to be the one to be the Redeemer who will go into Egypt to redeem His people. He will pay whatever price is necessary to free them. 
He will avenge whatever blood has been spilt because Yahweh is a redeemer. And when Yahweh redeems his people, he promises them that I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. This is familial language. Yahweh is using the language of a bridegroom making vows to his bride. He's using the language of a father to an orphan, promising to adopt them as a daughter or a son. God is going to pay whatever price necessary in order to have his people Israel to himself so that they can know him and serve him and enjoy him fully. This is a rousing speech that God is giving to Moses. He's, he's using powerful language, saying to Moses, don't you see who I am? I'm the God who's always been faithful in the past, and I am going to do whatever is necessary in order to be faithful in the present so that in the future I can have you to myself. I've promised you freedom and the land of Canaan for you to dwell in, and I will surely give it to you. He tells Moses, go and tell the people my name. And tell them that I'm doing a new thing in Egypt and that I am revealing my name Yahweh as proof of that. Tell them to trust me. I will surely save you, says the Lord. And you will be my family. In this speech that he's given to Moses, God has covered the past and the present and the future. All of it potent and moving. See, what God is doing is he is inviting Moses and us as readers today to consider our present circumstances in light of his faithfulness in the past. In light of the work that he is currently doing in the world and in light of the promises that he has given us about the future. We can't take a sober assessment of what God, of, of the world around us, or our individual circumstances, apart from understanding what God has already done in the past. We can't take a sober assessment of the present without having a clear understanding of what he is currently working to accomplish. And we can't take a sober assessment of the present if we do not know what to expect in the future. See, the Israelites were convinced things were getting worse. Because the flight was turbulent. Moses was becoming convinced of it as well. But God assured Moses that he was on the move. He assured Moses that the suffering was part of the process, but it was a sign of progress. Your condition for the moment, church, may seemingly be getting worse. But God but God is saying that things are getting better. The trip may be turbulent, but the destination is nearer than it's ever been. Things for Israel were not getting worse, even if they seemed like it. The birth pangs were intensifying, but that is a sign of the life and the progress that is to come, even in the midst of suffering. So you, like the Israelites, may be convinced that things are getting worse in our world. Maybe you are suffering with chronic illness. 
relationship troubles. Maybe the news cycle has convinced you that the world is in the midst of vast moral decay. Maybe you're concerned with things like pollution and climate change and and, and that you're convinced that creation itself is falling apart. And if we look at those individual data points, we may be convinced that things are getting worse. But the question is, are they really? How can we understand our place in the world in 2019? Well, like God called Moses to do, I think he is calling us to begin by looking back on all that he has done. The Exodus wasn't the final revelation of God. Just like God told Moses that he was revealing himself more fully in his days, so did God once again reveal himself more fully after the days of Moses. Most notably in his son, Jesus Christ. In Jesus, Yahweh has revealed himself as the word of God taken on flesh. Fully God and fully man. In Jesus, God has revealed himself as a true human redeemer who has come down for his people to pay the full price of his flesh and blood and life in order that he might have us as his own. God has revealed himself in the person of Jesus as righteous and loving and patient and kind, sacrificial and altogether lovely. And so we don't only worship the God who redeemed us from slavery in our days in Egypt, but we worship the God who has in the person and work of Jesus Christ delivered us from Satan, sin and death through the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. This is an outstretched arm. These are mighty acts of judgment. He has delivered all who trust in him from darkness into marvelous light. So we can look back to the work of Jesus, the faithfulness of Yahweh, his sinless life, his sacrificial death, his victorious resurrection. God has been faithful. He has revealed himself more fully and more beautifully than ever before. And like Moses, we can consider what God is doing right now. Jesus, at the very moment that we gather in this theater, is gloriously ascended and seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly realms as a human king representing himself as the king of all creation, representing us as the king of all creation. By the power of his Holy Spirit, he has put himself within his redeemed people, the church, And right now, he is seeing to it that every last one of his people who have yet to hear and believe in his resurrection have an opportunity to enter into his rest. He is using us, his people, to proclaim the good news, to care for the poor, to heal the sick, and to create beauty in the world that God is making new. Surely, if we look at the news cycle, If we look at our individual circumstances, we may think that things are getting worse. But since Jesus ascended to the throne over 2,000 years ago, and since his Holy Spirit descended upon God's people at Pentecost, the world has been increasingly full of God's grace, increasingly full of his glory, his love, his peace, and his beauty. Since the ascension of Jesus 
and the pouring out of God's Spirit over 2,000 years ago, there is far less disease and hunger and violence in the world than there ever has been. Moreover, there are millions upon millions of people to whom the blood of Jesus has been applied in order that they are redeemed by God into his kingdom to belong to him as his children and bride forever. Church, God's kingdom is advancing today. God's kingdom is coming to earth right now as it is in heaven. Do not believe anything other than that. We should be an optimistic and a hopeful people. And just like the Israelites experienced God in more depth through their suffering, so the scriptures promise us that we too will become better acquainted with our Lord, our suffering servant, Jesus Christ, through our own suffering. And like Moses, I believe God is calling us to consider his promises for the future. What has Yahweh promised for us, his people, to come in the future? Well, if God's kingdom is advancing now, what are we to expect will happen? Well, just as God revealed himself in a new way through giving his name Yahweh in the days of the Exodus, And just as God revealed himself in a new way, in a more full way, in the person and work of Jesus, so will God more fully and more ultimately be revealed in the future. As his kingdom comes and advances today, there will one day be a time in which his kingdom is fully established, fully consummated. There will be a day in which God will dwell with us even more powerfully than he does now through his spirit. And in that day, there will be no more suffering. There will be no more sin. There will be no more circumstances circumstances which will keep us from fully trusting our promise-keeping God. For all of his promises will have come to pass. Our Lord Jesus, in his first coming, was revealed through the names Word of God, Suffering Servant, Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Man, and the Lamb of God. But in his second coming that we await, he will appear no more as a humble and lowly servant, but as a fierce and victorious warrior king. He will in that day be called faithful and true, Lord of lords and King of kings. And in that day, there will be no more Egypts or Pharaohs to enslave us, no more Babylons to exile us, no more bullying Goliaths to defeat us. There will be no more lying serpents. There will only be Christ Jesus, our King, faithful and true. And in that day, we will dwell in his promised rest, the better Canaan, his kingdom. We will dwell there for eternity. This is the past and the present and the future of God's revelation. So how are we today to respond? Well, what Moses did when God gave him this speech is that he went 
to the Israelites with this good news. This good news to take heart. God is on the move, but the Israelites did not take heart. They were overwhelmed by their sorrow. They were broken in their suffering. And even Moses continued to doubt himself. He continued to doubt God, telling him that that he didn't think he was fit to speak before Pharaoh. If the Israelites don't believe me, how is Pharaoh going to listen to me? Moses said he was one who had uncircumcised or impure lips. But God's promises in Egypt came to pass regardless of the hopefulness or the attitude of the people of Israel. He freed the slaves in Israel and gave them the land of promise simply because he said he was going to do it. And that is the same for us today. God is going to make all things new. He's going to complete the work of redemption of all creation regardless of our present hope in that reality. Many of us, like Moses, will doubt ourselves. We won't feel eloquent enough, gifted enough, obedient enough, pure enough. And if we continue reading in Exodus 6, past where Beth read today, we'll see that Moses twice tells God that he doesn't think Pharaoh will listen to him. Moses and Aaron, in between that, however, had a genealogy given. There was one instance of Moses saying, Pharaoh's not going to listen. And then there's this genealogy of Moses and Aaron, followed by Moses once again saying, God is not, Moses, Pharaoh's not going to listen. And the genealogy is there on purpose. It's sandwiched between Moses' doubt on purpose. Its purpose is to show us a few things. First, it reveals, the genealogy does, that Moses and Aaron were of the line of Reuben, the firstborn son of Israel. They were heirs and patriarchs among a nation who God called his firstborn. They were honored among the most honorable. The genealogy also reveals that Aaron is to become the first priest of Israel and that his son will be his sons will make a line of priests. The genealogy tells us essentially that Israel will, through Aaron, become a kingdom of priests, ministering the word and promises of God to the world around them, beginning with Moses and with Aaron. And finally, within their genealogy is an interesting detail, and that is that there is a woman mentioned in the genealogy, and she is a Canaanite woman. See, they were already blood ancestors linked to Canaan, citizens of the land that God promised them they were going to take possession of. Similarly, the church has a genealogy. We are, too, a collective priesthood, proclaiming and ministering God's promises to the world around us, having been grafted and adopted into the family of the great high priest, Jesus Christ. We are also co-heirs of the kingdom of God with Christ, brothers to the firstborn from the dead, honored by the most honorable one. And as such, we are of the line of Jesus, our brother, adopted by our father Yahweh, and are therefore citizens 
of the heavenly place that we have, have yet to take possession of, having been sprinkled by the blood of the heavenly one. Though we may live today in a sinful world full of darkness, we already have citizenship and an inheritance in the land that we've yet to fully take possession of. And so with all of Israel and Moses and Aaron being discouraged, verse 13 says this, Yahweh gave them a charge, them being Moses and Aaron, about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. So you may look at the world around you and doubt that God is moving. You may look at yourself and your sin or your perceived lack of gifts and skills. You may doubt your ability to take part in the work that God is doing in the world. You may still be in the depths of despair and sorrow and hopelessness. You may be in the depths of shame and guilt from sin. And still, if you are in Christ, God is saying to you a similar thing that he said to Moses and Aaron. I see you. I love you. You are mine, and I intend to use you. Go and make disciples. Heal the sick. Feed the poor. Love the outcast. And I promise that one day, all things will be made new. All things will be made perfect. The message of this text is that you do not have to be perfect. You do not have to be without doubt. You don't have to be full of optimism and hope, even though we've seen that in Christ we have every reason to be optimistic and hopeful. Even so, God intends to use you. He desires for you and for us collectively as his people to be involved deeply in the redemption of all creation. For some of you, that begins today as he is calling you for the first time to trust in the redeeming blood of Jesus Christ as your only hope in life and death. But for those of you who have already called and believed upon Christ, he's calling you to come and join him as he redeems his people with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Church, the beauty of God will prevail. Things are getting better His kingdom is advancing. The question is, will you be a part of it? Let's pray. Father, we humble ourselves before you. In your majesty and in your love and in your beauty, for you have been faithful in the past. You are faithful right now. You will be faithful in the future. Lord, we can put all of our hope and our trust in you. And so this morning, we open up our hands and we lay ourselves down before you, saying we trust you, Lord. Saying we know that you are on the move, that your kingdom is advancing. That redemption is occurring, even though we at times are discouraged. Would you give us joy and hope and optimism? Would you allow us to look upon our neighbors with love and with pity and with care? Would you allow us to be your people, taking part in your redemption? 
preaching good news to both those who need to be reminded of it and those who need to hear it for the first time, showing hospitality to those who are without homes and families and friends, feeding those who are hungry, caring for those who are sick, proclaiming good news that Christ is risen and that he is coming again and that once more you will reveal yourself even more fully than you already have. Oh, we long for that day. Would you make it come soon? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.